Hello, my name is Ravinder. I'm a final year medical student studying in Australia at University of Notre Dame in Fremantle. Today I'm talking about seizures and epilepsy. So after this talk, what I hope we can clarify is the definition of a seizure versus epilepsy. You should have a clear understanding about the causes and pathogenesis of a seizure, how we classify them, some of the clinical features, the differential diagnosis, so things that can mimic a seizure. Um, but most important in this talk is about the management of epilepsy and how we manage an acute seizure attack and discussing um, briefly about complications. So for the definitions, a seizure is defined as an abnormal excess activation of the neuronal circuitry system causing neurological dysfunction. Or in simple terms, the neuronal circuitry just going haywire. Epilepsy is defined as a recurrent unprovoked seizure and is generally classified by greater than two or more seizures. And the most common question we probably get asked as medical students is about status epilepticus. Um, and it's pretty much a state of continued recurrent seizures with a failure to regain consciousness um, in between attacks. The reason why we probably get asked about this is because it is actually a medical emergency and we will discuss this um, at the end of our talk. So moving on about the pathogenesis of a seizure, we still don't know the exact mechanism or the exact cause of a seizure, but all we do know is the neuronal communication going wrong. And we, we break this up into three main categories. You can have too many connections. You can have too many excitatory um, mechanisms such as glutamate, or we have the failure of the main inhibitory system in our body, which is GABA. So in a combination of all these three leads to this neuronal circuitry haywiring. So for the causes, a seizure can be broken up into your primary or secondary cause. Primary being idiopathic, so no apparent cause found, and secondary are all the ones that listed in front of you. Now, if a patient presents with a first time episode of a seizure, we know that majority of the cases, um, greater than 50%, are gonna have no apparent cause found. However, we would always need to rule out secondary causes of, of this type of seizure. I have a nice acronym, which is probably most commonly used um, by students, such as Vindicate or Vindicate Him. Um, just gets a nice kind of categorization of causes. So a vascular cause would be something like strokes, subarachnoid hemorrhages, or a bleed in, within inside the brain, pretty much. Um, infection, so any meningitis, encephalitis, um, even malaria can cause to have a bit of encephalopathy. encephalopathy. Um, brain tumours, um, drugs. So drugs is probably the second most commonest cause um, of a seizure. Um, the first being no cause, really. And the ones that we're really interested in are the antidepressants, uh, the Maui inhibitors, the illicit drug use such as cocaine, amphetamine, but alcohol is a really big and important one to know. So particularly alcohol intoxication, but also alcohol withdrawal. And knowing that fact, any withdrawal from any drug can cause you to have seizures. And then iatrogenics, obviously us causing by giving um, particular medications or again, drug withdrawals. Congenital causes, so there's been, obviously there's a strong family history, there's been links with genetic abnormalities within the sodium channels, 
um, within the brain. Autoimmune causes, so vasculitis primarily can cause you to have a seizure. Trauma, so any head trauma, which are probably linked in with your vascular causes. And endocrine and metabolic. So this is also uh, a real important one. You can never, ever forget about glucose. So hypoglycemia can cause a seizure. Hyponatremia and hypocalcemia can also do it. But fevers, as you know, the febrile seizure and hypoxia. So there's two main categories in classifying seizures. It can either be a focal or a generalized. Now, focal means that the actual abnormality of the neuronal excitation is occurring in a particular area. So that can work in the motor cortex, the visual cortex, can work in the temporal um, lobe. So they give you specific signs and symptoms. Whereas generalized seizures, they occur within both of the cerebral hemisphere and it's involved from the start of the seizure. So then focal seizures can be broken up further into simple, complex, or focal with secondary generalized. So simple, the main importance to know about this is that consciousness is not impaired. So they can have these symptoms or signs, but however, they are aware throughout the whole episode. Depending upon where the actual focal activity um, is, they can, they can have motor symptoms, so jerking, muscle twitching, or rigidity. They can have sensory sensations, such as visual changes, aura, smell, taste, and even the psychological group deep in the hippocampal area, they can bring up emotional and memory uh, type complaints. Then you have complex. So same as simple, but how they have impaired complex. And then you can have focal with secondary generalized, which means that the seizure starts as a focal, say a simple jerking or a visual aura, and all of a sudden progress to a loss of consciousness and having a massive tonic-clonic seizure. So for generalized seizures, there's five main subgroups. Tonic-clonic seizures are the most commonest form of generalized seizures, tonic being the fact that the patient goes into complete rigidity, and then they start vigorously jerking around, hence clonic. They can also get isolated tonic seizures, so just being, being completely stiff, or a myoclonic seizure, so just pure sporadic jerking around. Then they can have absent seizures where the patient begins to have a blank stare. However, they have no post-ictal confusion. And the fifth form of generalized seizure is an atonic or the drop attacks. So these patients have complete loss of tone. The main thing to know about a generalized seizure though is that all of these cause a loss of consciousness. And that's an important point to note. Since we've talked about the different types of seizures, how do we then go about finding out what type of seizure a patient has had? And believe it or not, it's all in the history. And a nice way of really getting a good history is breaking it simply into the pre-ictal, so what was occurring before they had a seizure, the ictal or the attack, so what occurred during the attack, and then post-ictal, so what happened after, after the attack. And throughout this, you want to confirm with a witness or get some form of collateral history about these three main categories. So some of the questions that we want to ask in the pre-ictal phase are risk factors, triggers, which I have gone into further detail in the next couple of slides, but also a little bit about the timing of the seizure, 
do they feel funny or do they have any aura? And also noting about their colour, where they're pale, do they have flushing, were they a bit clammy and sweaty, more for a differential of could this have been a syncopal episode. When asking a patient about risk factors, we would like to know about any previous head injuries. Have they had any febrile seizures as a child? As we know that febrile seizures do increase your risk of having epilepsy in adulthood. Any infection such as meningitis or encephalitis? Have the patient had a stroke in the past? Do we know that they're an alcohol abuser or are they chronic alcoholics? Could they be potentially withdrawing? And obviously we would like to know a little bit about family history. So listed below are the main triggers for a seizure attack. So these are the main ones, sleep deprivation, excess stress, alcohol as we already mentioned, any use of recreational drugs, flashing lights. Pregnancy is important as pregnancy does lower your um, seizure threshold and any current infection. So then we move to the ictal phase. And what we would like to know in this part of questioning is where did it happen? The duration and onset of the attack. Did they have any altered consciousness or impairment uh, of their consciousness? Or did they lose consciousness altogether? Tiny tongue biting, frothing at the mouth, any urinary incontinence and cyanosis. So the last three are more indicative of an actual seizure attack. And the alternate consciousness is quite important to note as it will help us differentiate between a focal seizure versus a generalized seizure. Also help us define whether this is going to be an atypical or a typical seizure as well. And finally, we come to the postictal phase. What happened after their attack? Was there any confusion? If so, how long for? Does the patient have any ongoing weakness? This is known as Todd's paresis, which is a focal weakness in a part of a body after a simple or a focal seizure. And this generally resolves within 48 hours. These patients can also get speech and visual impairment. We also want to know, did this patient sustain any injuries to the head and neck? Shoulder is important because of dislocation and tongue injury, particularly if they're bitten down on their tongue. So once we've done a thorough history, we should be thinking about, is this really a true seizure? And if so, what type is it? But also we want to make sure that we haven't missed out something that could mimic a seizure. So some of the things that we need to think about is, could this patient be faking it? So that a pseudo seizure, could this be a complicated migraine? again, can present with aura, can get neurological um, weakness or forms of jerky motions in their arms and limbs. Could this be a carpopedal spasm from hyperventilation? A little bit about the mechanism there is that when patients hyperventilate, they become a little bit alkalotic. So when your bloodstream becomes alkalotic, albumin binds a lot more to calcium. So you have a transient state of hypocalcemia. And the best way to treat that is getting them to breathe into a brown paper bag, reabsorbing their carbon dioxide. And the main thing for differential is, could this have been a syncopal episode? And in the syncopal episode, we want to know about, could, it, could they have had an arrhythmia, or I should say a dysrhythmia? Could it have been a vasovagal? Could it also have been a postural drop? Now, with a syncopal episode, we generally would have hoped that these patients would have had a prodromal symptoms of pallor, flushingness, 
feeling a bit clammy, lightheaded. They will generally have an absence of uh, aura. They won't have any tongue biting or any postcoital confusion. Also with syncope, you can get a chronic activity, which is generally quite mild in comparison to a true seizure, which, which is quite vigorous. But also the duration of their attack is much longer, so generally greater than 30 seconds for a seizure in comparison to a syncope episode which is generally less than 30 seconds once the patient has collapsed or laid down they generally feel better for an examination most patients won't really be having a seizure in front of you and so they will be alert relatively orientated they might be slightly confused but generally a gcs of 14 or 15 so there's really not much you can gain from a an examination however you have to ensure you do a cranial nerve examination a neurological examination just to ensure there's no deficit but if a patient is having a seizure in front of you or you want to determine whether this is a true seizure they should have some of these signs which is pupil dilatation the patients will be hypertensive tachycardic they will have a upgoing plantar response so a positive Babinski cyanosis or they might just have peripheral cyanosis only after completing an examination which is not much to be found we will then proceed to our investigations now investigations are primarily done to rule out the secondary causes as listed by the vindicates list but there are a few biochemical signs of a seizure um, and their patient might be hypoxic again explaining why they'd be cyanose they might be acidotic because they're not blowing off their carbon dioxide and they might have an increase in their creatinine kinase and that's due to the fact of a seizure activity causing muscle spasms or rapid contractility of the muscles and that can cause uh, an increase in your ck by muscle breakdown we want to continue on ruling out our secondary causes. So we want to look at their electrolytes, so in particularly any hyponatremia, any hypocalcemia, as we know that can cause seizures activities. We would also want to do an ECG. Now that's to look for if this could have been a Singapore episode. Is a patient having a funny arrhythmia, such as an SVT? Could it be a heart block? So this will help us in helping differentiate between a Singapore episode and a true seizure activity. Then it comes to a CT scan or an MRI. Now this is primarily done to rule out a structural abnormality or cause. Now these investigations are primarily done on a patient who has never had a seizure before. So a patient who has presented with a first time seizure will have an EEG done and a CT or an MRI done at some stage by the neurologist. This is obviously just again to ensure that we haven't missed out any of the secondary causes. Now we move to the management aspects of treating seizures and epilepsy. So the goals really for this type of condition is we want to aim to keep a patient seizure free, improve their quality of life, uh, minimize side effects from the medication, use the least amount of drugs at the lowest effective dose. And this is a nice template to use when asked by a consultant 
what are some of the management goals of a particular disorder. And it's really just always mentioned improvement of quality of life, minimize side effects from medications, ensure the medications are given are right, giving it the correct dose, and making sure it's at effective doses as well. So that's something to bear in mind. So for anti-epileptic medication, I'm going to discuss the four main ones used that you'll probably see around on the wards. Now, the good thing about anti-epileptic drugs for exam purposes is that we don't really know how they work, but um, they work. And we hypothesize that it's got something to do with sodium channel. So if you had to guess about anti-epileptic drugs and you said sodium channel blocker, 95% of the time you'd probably be right. The first one is carbamazepine, and as you guess, would be a sodium channel blocker, um, which prevents the repetitive neuronal discharge, so really just dampening down that neuronal circuitry system. Now, some of the uses for carbamazepine would be for focal seizures, uh, secondary generalized seizures, and can also be used for neuropathic pain. Now, for the side effects, all anti-epileptic medications can cause you to have headaches, nausea, vomiting. But the main ones that you probably need to know about carbamazepine for exam purposes is that they can cause sedation, tremors, weight gain, and raise LFTs. But it also will be worthwhile to know about the SIADH. So this is syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. And when you measure the patient's uh, UECs, they will have a hyponatremic pattern, even though this patient is euvolemic. As you know, that hyponatremia can cause you to have seizures. It's something to have in the back of mind is could this have been from carbamazepine? And it's important to note that you should monitor the plasma levels of carbamazepine for an effective therapeutic window. And moving on to sodium valproate, which is probably the most commonest anti-epileptic medication you'll see. As you guessed, the mechanism of action is that it's a sodium channel blocker. Now, this medication is used as a broad spectrum, so it's used in all types of seizures. So if you had no idea how to treat uh, an epileptic patient, you just put them on sodium valproate and it will generally would work. Um, you can also use this for bipolar mood stabilizer as well. And a little bit about the side effects, it can cause sedation, weight gain, but probably the two most commonest side effects you want to know about is the leukopenia and the skin sensitivity to UV light. And for your extra marks, you want to avoid it in pregnancy as it's a category D, so it is teratinogenic to babies. And the third medication we're talking about is phenytoin, which is a sodium channel blocker, and this prevents the spread of a seizure activity primarily in the motor cortex. So if it's primarily working in the motor cortex, you can use this for the tonic-clonic seizures, the status epilepticus, um, and you can use it in prophylactically on post-op neurosurgical patients. Not commonly done, but can be used for those purposes. And the side effects, again, can cause you to feel a bit drowsy, you vomiting, you have a bit of a wide base of walking or the ataxic pattern. They can have a bit of a nystagmus. But also what you should be aware of is the hypersensitivity syndrome. Now, hypersensitivity syndrome can occur with all anti-epileptics, I believe, but has been documented primarily with phenytoin. And so what is a hypersensitivity syndrome? It can be quite fatal 
and this array of, sim of symptoms such as fever, rash, hepatitis, hepatorenal syndrome, and hemolysis. And patients who have this syndrome have an increased risk of dying. And the last medication is lamotrigine, and the mechanism of action is unknown, but it's been hypothesized that this stabilizes the presynaptic neuronal membrane um, by blocking the sodium channel. And this is again one of those broad spectrum use, so you can use it in all the seizures. Um, it can also be used in bipolar disease as well. And the side effects, again, can cause the hypersensitivity syndrome that we talked about, the Stephen Johnson syndrome or skin rashes as well, and the dizziness, headaches, nausea, vomiting. So listed here from the Scottish Intercollegiate Guideline Network about the diagnosis and management of epilepsy in adults has categorised nicely what medications we would use in what type of seizures. So for the partial and the secondary generalised seizures, the carbamazepine, the sodium valparate, the lamotrigine. So we know the sodium valparate and lamotrigine are the, the broad spectrum um, medications. And for primary generalized seizures, again, sodium valparate, lamotrigine, and you guess it again, if they're uncertain seizures, then use sodium valparate and lamotrigine. Before moving on to the acute management of a seizure, I just want to talk about epilepsy and clarifying a few things. When a patient that comes in to the ED department with a first time seizure, they do not have epilepsy. Epilepsy, as we said, is greater than two or more seizures within a 24-hour period generally, but it, it also is diagnosed by a neurologist, um, generally the consultant or the senior doctor there, who will conduct a various amounts of tests, including an MRI to exclude structural damage, but also an EEG to help confirm a bit of their diagnosis. They are the ones that start a patient on anti-epileptic medications. So we as junior doctors wouldn't need to know too much about when to start and what to start on, but what we should know is the mechanism of action of the, of the main anti-epileptic medications out there, which ones we use for what type of seizures, and a little bit about their side effect profile. Now coming to the main part of the talk, the acute management of a seizure. So this is quite a common question asked for final year medical students. So it's worthwhile of having a good template in your head as to how to effectively treat this condition, as this can be quite a scary one. So I start off with the doctor's ABC, so D for danger, so particularly danger to yourself and danger to the patient. So removing any sharp objects around or near the patient, ensuring that the bed rails are up if the patient is on a bed or on the ward. Um, and if they are on a bed, make sure that it's at the lowest height possible just in case if they do fall. You want to check their response. So you want to assess their conscious level. Are they responding or not? We want to also send for help. And we want to look at their airway in particular. Do they have a patient airway? Are they struggling with their breathing? If so, do we need to give them one? Sometimes a nasopharyngeal airway is probably the best way to go as most if they're having a tonic-clonic seizure in particular, their jaw will be shut and you will be unable to really put anything in their mouth and you shouldn't force, it's not, or I should say, it's not recommended to force anything down someone's mouth such as a Goodell or a Yanka sucker. And then for their breathing, 
you know, if their patient has signs of peripheral cyanosis and they're struggling with their breathing, you know, you might want to put on a non-rebreather, high flow oxygen, so 15 litres, and circulation. So you want to get um, an IV access if possible, and you want to check their blood pressure um, to ensure that they're not crashing or there's a single episode. And the good thing with the acute management of a seizure, you generally just wait for about five minutes. And in that five minutes, you're doing your doctor's ABC, you're applied the high flow oxygen, and you're going to check for their sugar. Now, then it's important to look at the sugar because we know that hypoglycemia is a common cause of a seizure. And if the patient is being known to be hypoglycemic, then you probably want to give them 50% of dextrose, 50 mils IV stat, or give them a milligram of glucagon if you can get your hands on that. After five minutes, this is when you start to do an active management. So if you haven't got your large cannula in, then we have to give something via buccally or intranasally or via the rectum. So you can give midazolam, 5 or 10 milligrams intranasally or buccally, or diazepam, 10 to 30 milligrams via the rectum. But if you do have IV access, use it. And you can either give the midazolam, and that's 0.05 to 0.1 milligrams per kilo, so up to 10 milligrams um, IV, or the diazepam, which is up to 20 milligrams IV. And once you give this medication, reassess the airway, breathing, circulation, and you wait five minutes and to see whether a seizure ceases or not. And most times, they will cease. And if it has, you just want to continue to do the observations and you want to look at potential causes of this seizure. If after five minutes they still continue to seize, then this is when we start the protocol of status epilepticus. So as we know, status epilepticus is uh, multiple seizure attacks without the gaining of uh, full consciousness between them. And so we've given the first dose of midazolam or diazepam. We've waited five minutes and they have still they're still seizing, we will give them another dose. So the exact same thing, so you repeat the dose. So you have to gain IV access if you haven't already gained it by now. So the exact same thing, midazolam 10 milligrams max or the diazepam up to 20 milligrams IV. And then you want to know, are they still fitting? So if they're still fitting, this is when the status epilepticus uh, protocol gets used you then need to start a phenytoin um, infusion. So generally you, um, it's 18 milligrams per kilo IV in normal saline over 30 minutes. Now it's really important to monitor um, their heart because they are known to get bradycardias with phenytoin and they can also get quite hypotensive. And if they're still fitting despite your amazing management, then this is when you need to intubate a patient so you, with the RSI, which is rapid sequence induction and ICU. But hopefully by that stage, we've had the cavalry would have arrived and helped you um, throughout this whole process. And if they if they stop fitting after the second dose, then you don't really then you don't have to give them the phenytoin or or intubate them or anything like that. Just go back to your doctor, ABC ensuring they have an intact airway, they're breathing well, their circulation, and finding out the secondary cause, or, or, or sorry, I should say, the primary cause or the secondary cause of the seizure.
Then we come to the complication. So why do we treat a seizure? The main reason is that patients become quite hypoxic and can cause cerebral ischemia and further um, cause a vicious cycle of multiple seizures. Also, the reason why we treat status epilepticus, as we know as a medical emergency, is that if the seizure is greater than an hour, we've been known to cause cerebral edema primarily from or secondary to the hypoxic injury. And patients can also get aspiration pneumonitis, and they can get hypothermia due to the fact of the seizure activity of the muscle contractions, uh, muscle breakdown causing uh, obviously increasing heat. And then you can have the injury to the, the musculoskeletal system, so any fractures uh, and dislocations, in particular the shoulder. So in summary, we talked about what a seizure is, what epilepsy is, and status epilepticus. We've talked about causes of a seizure, um, the primary and secondary causes, had we taken appropriate history from a patient, basic investigations of the patient, and the most commonest anti-epileptic medications that we'll see um, on our time, or the most commonest anti-epileptic medications we'll see as doctors, and talking about the acute management or emergency management of a seizure and status epilepticus. So listed below are the references that I've used throughout this talk. I hope you found this helpful.